Neil put it well, didn't he? A sort of a black hole for our Bible reading. Verse 16, he took the elders of the town and taught them a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. I'm a teacher, I follow a slightly different model to Gideon. Um, but he's a hero of Israel. And this is a chewy passage, isn't it? There's, there's serious gristle. If, you, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, as Andy started the series off, you, you might well be thinking that chapters 6 and 7 are more to your taste. I, I can't disagree. What do we do with a Bible passage which is frankly deplorable? With one that, that portrays the heroes of Israel behaving in a brutal manner. Thinking back, a, a simple response to the last two chapters might have been just to imitate Gideon. To trust in a God who is strong in our weakness. To step out boldly in faith, knowing that the sovereign Lord is the one who wins battles. But then we see our hero doing this. Let me say, if you're just visiting us this morning, or if you're, if you're looking in on Christianity from the outside, doesn't this look horrible? It sort of chimes with the accusation that critics level at Christianity, that the Old Testament Christianity is a story of wrath and violence and inhumanity, not fit for the modern mind. What are we to make of it? I think to deal with the question, it's going to be important that we know what the book of Judges is about. It's a book of bitter cycles. So in the, the first few books of the Bible, the, the Israelites have been saved from slavery in Egypt by God's mighty hand. They've been led through the desert by Moses, the great prophet. They've been judged and refined in the wilderness so that when Joshua, Moses' successor, leads them into the promised land, that they are a whole new generation renewed and dedicated to living in covenant with the Lord, and it's looking awesome, but then right from the start of Judges. And then again and again throughout the book, the Israelites forget and ignore their covenant Lord. They do evil in his eyes. They imitate the nations around them. They begin to worship new gods, the Baals and Ashtoreth, and so the Lord gives them over to their new gods. And he gives them over to the nations around them. And their security melts away. But whenever they find themselves in horrible trouble, whenever they find themselves oppressed, they, they cry out to him. And again and again, the Lord sends them judges. Great leaders who save his people from the consequences of their actions. And so in that, Judges is a lovely book of little pictures of the way that God works salvation. But each time it's flawed. 
It never lasts. The heroes are, are not so heroic. And in fact, as the book goes on, things get worse and worse. If you think Gideon's flawed, later comes brutal Jephthah. And then the awful Samson. And by the final chapter of the book, everything has spiraled down into the mire. So just as much as Judges is a set of snapshots of what it looks like when God works salvation, it, it's also a set of declarations that Israel needs more. These men, the, these mighty leaders, these military victories, they aren't solving the core problem. And so like chapter 8, Judges is an unsatisfying book. It only points forwards. It leaves us looking for a greater salvation. So it is that here, as the story turns to Gideon, if we only had chapters 6 and 7 to work with, we might end up revering him as the real deal. He became a folk hero to Israel. We could have been left thinking that this is the picture of what salvation should be like. And instead we're given chapter 8 and we see how it all falls apart. And we're left longing. So chapter 8 covers five little episodes that illustrate what's lacking in Gideon and Israel. We're going to look at three of those this morning. I've grouped those together under a loose heading, a failure of strength. Next week we'll pick up the other two and we'll, we'll look at what's lacking in wisdom. And here's the central question for this morning. What kind of strength is needed to save and establish Israel? Is Gideon enough? We, we've called this series the God of the Underdog, but you could be forgiven for calling that into question. After all, we, we see in this passage, Gideon turns out to be a pretty serious military leader. And from early on, he, he seems to come from privilege. He, his father's relatively rich and influential. He ends up privileged too. Next week, we'll see that he lives suspiciously like a king. He has a massive family. In verse 32, he dies at a good old age. It's, it's Bible shorthand for a successful, blessed, wealthy life. Gideon seems strong in his own right. In what sense is he an underdog? Well, Andy showed us last week the message of chapter 7. It was not Gideon's might that drove off the Midianites. Back in chapter 7, verse 2, God deliberately neuters any chance for him to boast. He strips away the army. He leaves just 300 men, and they don't even draw a sword. Instead, the Lord plunges the Midianite army into, into such a fit of panic that they suffer 120,000 in casualties. And the remnant are sent fleeing for their lives. In chapter 7, verse 22, it was the arm of the Lord that won the battle. So by contrast, chapter 8 is going to show us just how far Gideon's strength carries him. Our first episode is chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Sorry, 1 to 3. Now, when Gideon first assembled his troops in chapter 6, he called on the tribes closest to him. So that's Asher, Manasseh, Zebulun, and Naphtali. The tribe of Ephraim, they're a little bit further south. So he only calls them up after the battle in chapter 7 as the enemy are fleeing. 
And the Ephraimites come along and they, they capture and kill many of the enemy, but, but they feel aggrieved. Weren't we good enough for you, Gideon? Why, why weren't we in on the original plan? Why are we just an afterthought? What an insult. So chapter 8, verse 1. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. I think we're going to see two things here. The first is that Israel needs far more than what is being done so far. They need more because they're not looking for the right kind of strength. They don't recognize or understand the problem that they have. Ephraim seemed to think that this is just a military challenge. That they need to band together and fight the enemy off and restore the honor of the tribes. That they don't seem to remember the reason that they were overrun in the first place. That they had rejected the covenant Lord. It was him who had kept them safe. There's just been this colossal victory in chapter 7 and the Lord has won it by his strength. Gideon's forces winnowed down to 300, the rest sent home to their families, and those 300 don't draw their swords. And these Midianites who are infesting the country like locusts in chapter 6 are pushed back and scattered. And the whole point is it was the Lord who did this. Gideon couldn't boast. All the honor and victory belonged to God. But the, the Ephraimites, they wanted in on the fight. They wanted the honor. They seethed at the insult. And that's why in, in verses 2 and 3, they can be pacified so easily. Gideon just has to point out the size of their military victories. The two kings they've beheaded. Don't worry, guys. Your, your honor is satisfied. That their heads and hearts are in the wrong place. Where's the awe? at the God who saved them with no risk to themselves? Where's the worship? Where's the gratitude to Gideon, a leader who's allowed himself to be humbled as he responded to the Lord's call? They're looking for the wrong kind of strength. They need something more to show them their need. They need to see that it was the Lord that rescued them, not Gideon, not their own strength. Second thing we see is Gideon's response. And there's a sense in which this is a credit to him. He's diplomatic, isn't he, in, in verses 2 and 3. He soothes inflated egos. He, he downplays his own role. Well, well done, Gideon. By way of comparison, if you flick ahead to chapter 12, with a downward spiral of judges, things get worse rather than better. So about 90 years later, Ephraim pulled the same stunt with Jephthah. He slaughters them. Gideon looks pretty good. But there's just this little warning bell going off at this point. Shouldn't, shouldn't a really faithful leader be challenging their misunderstanding? Shouldn't he be finding a way to maybe gently rebuke them? To remind them of the true story of what's happening? 
Ephraim, my brothers, you think I've insulted you, but, but we all turned away from God. That's what caused our problems. And look, he's saved us. The victory belonged to the Lord. But look at what he says in verse 2 and 3. What have I done compared to you? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do? Is there a hint of sour grapes? Do you remember back in in chapter 7, verse 20, the war cry that he gave them? A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. But Gideon didn't get a chance to get his sword dirty. Where was Gideon's chance at honor? And so when he's appeasing his countrymen in verse 3, he's downplaying and even dismissing the Lord's victory. Whose strengths he interested in? Second episode. It's verses 4 to 17. And, and just as the whole of Judges is a downward spiral for Israel, we get a microcosm of that here in chapter 8. It, it looks worse and worse for Gideon as we go on through. So in verse 4, we've got Gideon and his 300 exhausted men. They're in hot pursuit of the enemy. They're hungry for battle and victory, it seems. And as they pass through this region of Israel to the east of the Jordan, they come to these two towns, Succoth and Peniel. They ask for supplies, and foolishly, the officials of the town refuse. And again, I think there's two things for us to see. Firstly, Israel needs more. They haven't got enough in Gideon to unite them. And besides, what they're looking for is the wrong stuff. So these two towns, they're they're on the far side of the Jordan from the rest of Israel. They're closer to the enemy. They're more vulnerable to the Midianites. They may be closer to them in culture than than some of the rest of Israel. We don't really know. But what we do know is their concern's understandable. They've just seen 15,000 Midianites go past. And then, like a little terrier nipping at their heels, 300 men with Gideon. Can, can they really afford to back the underdog there? What if it goes wrong and Zebra and Zalmunna come back angry? And of course, the problem is that they're thinking in terms of military strength, like Ephraim was. 300 versus 15,000, pull the other one, Gideon. You're a mentalist. But what they should be looking at is what they know of the Lord. In chapter 6, before Gideon's raised up, the Lord sent a prophet to Israel. Chapter 6, verse 8, this is what he said. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. What's 15,000 to him? They've lost sight of the might of their God. Their hearts are closed. It needs opening up. They need more than a military leader. And secondly, again, we see Gideon's response. 
Things are getting darker, aren't they? Looking over this a little bit, it's not for nothing that in chapter 6, the angel of the Lord addresses Gideon as a mighty warrior. Look at verse 11 here. I think this guy's insane. With 300 tired men, he's pursued a force that outnumbers them 50 to 1. And he circles round through rough terrain and he falls on them when they're not expecting it. And he throws them into disarray and routs them and captures their kings. What a lad. What a folk hero this guy is. But he's not the man you want to depend on, is he? See, the rage and the overweening pride that goes with his perception of his strength. So returning home in verses 14 to 17, he he gets the elders of Sukkoth, who who should be respected and honoured, and for their poor decision, he flogs them with desert thorns. And you notice that to satisfy his pride, 77 of them have to be punished. What does that tell you about his sense of self-worth? And then he goes to Peniel and he tears down the tower, the defensive structure. And he slaughters the men of the town, their standing army. He flogs the decision makers. He destroys the military defenses of his fellow Israelites. Treats them as enemies. Gideon's strength is an inadequate salvation, isn't it? It fails in delivering justice. It fails in delivering compassion, which Israel desperately needs. Then our final episode. Verses 18 to 21. We hit rock bottom. It it just couldn't feel any more wrong. God's salvation hero, Gideon, has gone completely awry. Verse 18, he asked Zebra and Zalmona, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jetha, his eldest son, he said, kill them. But Jetha did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zebra and Zalmona said, come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off the camel's necks. Verses 18 and 19, it's revealed that Gideon is driven not by concern for Israel, not by love of the Lord, not, not even purely by military pride, but by thirst for vengeance. At some point in the story, his brothers have been murdered and now he's got the culprits and he can do what he likes with them. It's ugly, isn't it? Verse 19 highlights the wrong priorities. In chapter 6, verse 16, Gideon gets commissioned by God to strike down all the Midianites. But here... Here he swears to that same living Lord that he would have let them go had they not trespassed against him. 
In verse 20, we get this odd interaction with his son. Perhaps giving the boy a chance for vengeance. Perhaps giving him a chance to be initiated into the the customs of violence and blood feud. He's teaching his son the wrong stuff though, isn't he? As we thought earlier, shouldn't he be raising his children in knowledge of the Lord's strength? We'll look back at that again next week. It's verse 21, I think, which sums up his problems. I I can't tell if this is a a taunt that his son isn't up to the job, or or perhaps a mark of grudging respect from Zebra and Zalmanah. He's shown himself maybe to be the kind of guy that they can admire. Is that what we're looking for? They say, come Gideon, show us what you've got. As is the man, so is his strength. And so Gideon stepped forth and killed them. As is the man, so is his strength. The message of Judges 8 is that Gideon is just not the man that Israel needs, is he? No matter his heroism, no matter his diplomacy, no matter his strength, he'll turn out powerless to reform them because his heart is equally flawed. Indeed, according to the pattern of Judges in chapter 8, verse 33, the moment Gideon dies, Israel abandons the Lord and the whole bitter cycle kicks up again. Now we've got to be careful. There's this real risk with this passage of chucking the baby out with the bathwater. We don't get to pass condemnation on Gideon, I think. He's not just a cautionary tale for us. In fact, he's deliberately held up as a good example. In Judges 6 and 7, he shows us something of what it will look like when the Lord rescues his people. We saw that the Lord is patient with those he calls. We saw that he's generous in the face of doubt. We saw that he's faithful to his promises. We saw the Lord working out his victory using Gideon irrespective of human strength. It's the hand of the Lord that delivers his people. And and by the end of Judges 8, we'll read that despite all of this violence and horror, This is how Midian was subdued. This is how the Lord rescued his people from enemies on every side. And if you step much further on through history, in Hebrews 11, Gideon is one of four characters from Judges who are are named in that glorious list of witnesses. People who've achieved great things through faith. He's held up there alongside Abraham and Moses. So we're not to round on him in condemnation, are we? Now, we need to be looking for something greater, though. The immediate message to the Israelite readers of this is is that the military leader was never going to be enough. The the core problem, the the heart of the people, is in the wrong place. They need a greater salvation. I wonder if that's a message that we heed. How do you see your leaders? It's a real danger, isn't it, in churches? 
How much hangs on the charismatic front man or, or the compassionate pastor or the great preacher? How quickly does our feeling about a church or an organization turn around when we feel let down? When we're not feeling fed by the preaching? When we're not feeling inspired by the music? When we're not cared for pastorally? Or worse, when we are ignored or harmed by the leadership? It's profoundly painful, isn't it? But it's, it shouldn't be surprising. How, how damaging is it to our faith when we see that our leaders fail us? Over the last fortnight in the news that a prominent Christian has been exposed and shamed. How much does that rock us? How, how quickly do we swing against that and condemn? But time and time again throughout the Bible, just as here with Gideon, we see that God uses profoundly broken individuals to call his people through to salvation. You, know, you take a close look at the lives of Abraham or Moses or David or Paul and you see clear evidence, these guys are not good enough. That's the sense in which they're the underdogs. And honestly, if you haven't already, you should probably realize this about your leaders here. Speaking as an insider, at least one of the elders is, uh, is pretty seriously letting you down. Ask me later, I'll tell you which. <laughs> Whether it's in home groups or leading the music or organizing ministries or, or preachers or, the, or your elders, we're each flawed as much as Gideon. And as is the man, so is his strength. We, we fail you. Are we surprised by that? Or are we ready to treat our leaders with the grace that the gospel provides? Because what's awesome here in Judges 8 is that God saves his people despite Gideon's flaws and despite their own flaws. And he can do that because Gideon and any of the Old Testament heroes are just shadows. They're just pale reflections, aren't they, of the greater salvation to come. We, we look at Gideon in the nice chapters and we see something of what God's saving hand looks like. But we look at him in the nasty chapter, we see also in his failings how much more is needed. How much better is Jesus? So, Gideon doubted and questioned every step of the way in chapter 6 and 7, and Jesus faithfully stepped forward on the road to Calvary, making himself obedient to death on a cross. Gideon seems to have chased battle and glory through chapter 8. Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he submitted himself to the greatest humiliation. Gideon's justice was to scourge the elders of Succoth with desert thorns for doubting him and tear down the defences of Peniel and murder the men. Isaiah writes of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. 
He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. Gideon's sense of his self-worth is such that he demands 77 are punished for the insult to his honor. Jesus makes himself nothing. Gave himself once for all a perfect sacrifice that all mankind could come to God. Gideon could barely unite Israel and then only for a few decades the risen Jesus sends his disciples forth to make nations disciples of all nations even to the ends of the earth so that on the final day in Revelation believers of every nation and tribe and people and tongue stand before the throne. Gideon gave Israel military victory but their hearts immediately wandered. The core problem was not mended. God promises that in Jesus, he will take away his people's hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh. And then he pours out the Holy Spirit on us, a, a counselor and comforter to teach and train and reform. As is the man, so is his strength. Gideon's not enough. But he's pointing us forward to the greater leader, to the Son of Man, the one who fulfills this Old Testament law, whose, whose character is flawless and who makes visible the fullness of God's nature. And our invitation and our privilege as Christians is to respond to him as Lord and King. With that, let's, let's pray together. And then we're going to lift our voices to him in worship. I referred to Hebrews before. After the long list of characters like Gideon who stepped out in faith, Hebrews 12 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Father God, thank you for the great cloud of witnesses that you provide. Thank you for flawed Bible hearers like Gideon who show us how you establish your mercy even through broken people. Thank you for the way that we see your strength made perfect in human weakness. Thank you for the crowd of Christian brothers and sisters and parents and mentors that you give us to point us and to encourage us towards you. Father, forgive us when we fill our eyes with the wrong strengths. When we believe the world's lies, when we want to fight for ourselves. When we lose sight of your power at work in each of us. Father God, fill our eyes instead with Jesus. Equip us by your spirit to fix our eyes on him and become imitators. Equip us to recognize your character in him and to worship in spirit and truth. Amen.